This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Kay Frankham, a business coach and approved supervisor for psychologists in private practice and co-author of the book, Fit to Practice. Kay talks to her professional journey from becoming an endorsed clinical and counselling psychologist to a business owner, to a consultant, as well as her national role in psychology regulation and professional standards and operating a successful group psychology practice and beyond whilst also sharing her valuable insights into unlocking the motivations to becoming an entrepreneur in psychology using digital health tools and methods. Let's jump in. Hey, Kate, thanks for making the time today. How are you doing? Very well, Yanni. Good to speak with you. Very interesting times in psychology, Kay. Um, you have an extensive career in the field obviously working uh, as a practitioner, as a psychologist in the field, but you've also been working on a number of um, boards and associations and uh, you're now moving into the uh, coaching and consulting field. Tell us a little bit about your journey to date. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey and I guess like many people, you know, you have um, iterations in your career and I'm probably on about my third or fourth iteration having (laughs) worked worked in uh, country Victoria, um, then come to the city, set up a suburban practice, took that through to a level where I was able to sell it two years ago, which is unusual, and um, wrote a book on how to set up a practice called Fit to Practice in that process and then sort of started doing a lot of coaching um, with other psychologists who were wanting to uh, set up practices or had a practice set up but felt that it was lacking a, a few important business standards or even clinical standards. So so various things were not quite working as they wanted them to and started talking to me about that. So I've done a lot of supervision over the years, which is one area. Again, this is more helping people with their clinical work, small c clinical work, but started moving into career coaching and coaching uh, people for what's next for me and coaching people for, you know, how am I going to um, take this practice and scale it up and make it work in the way I have a vision, you know, for this is kind of work I'm doing these days. I guess um, having lived that experience of being the psychologist who became the business owner, you must have experienced a lot of um, a lot of challenges in working through the difference between being a clinician and then transitioning into being an actual business person. What what was that like during the uh, what was it seventeen years or so that you yeah. you had that business? Yeah. I think I discovered that culture is everything. And if you can't lead, then there's going to be problems, you know, with the culture in your practice, whether you're a practice who's a solo practitioner, you can be a leader of yourself if you like, but it's more um, apparent and more uh, relevant to where you might have a small practice of three or four people. And this is common, you know, in our, in our profession, um, maybe one director and three or four uh, employees slash contractors or two directors and up to six or seven, even 10 practitioners and then you've got another group again who are sitting at maybe the 15 practitioner level and then you've got multi uh, location much bigger practices so in all of that you know there's this kind of question of 
you know, how do you actually set things up so that they um, are done in the appropriate way, but also so it's sustainable. And we all know that we're not taught how to run a business in our training. And then over time, it's about filling in those gaps. That seems to be a bit of a gap universally. I hear that a lot, you know, because obviously there's a lot of uh, continuous professional development around the clinical uh, side of being a um, psychologist. Uh, So being in business kind of then takes it to a whole nother level because you're no longer just dealing with uh, the relationship between yourself and your client, but you're now dealing with administration and management and dealing with, um, you know, the culture that you described and, and the people side of it. So I noticed in, um, in your uh, book that you've co-wrote uh, called Fit to Practice that you, you sort of lay out, you know, how to set up a private practice. Do you want to take us um, through some of the um, key points around that? Well, the first thing is to think about what it actually is going to entail because these days with the um, advent of digital opportunities to operate practices off a laptop with a mobile phone, everybody kind of thinks that they can operate a practice themselves. And so, you know, we're a female-dominated industry and we have a large number of people who are in the childbearing years, let's put it that way. And so often... I'm talking to women who are in a position where they've started a practice or they've been working for themselves, they've had a couple of babies, and then what? You know, how do you operate a practice and operate your life? And people wanting to have a year off on maternity leave and, and, and wondering what to do with their practice and their clients and their referrers. So digital mechanisms, platforms, you know, practice management platforms and so forth are all very helpful, but they don't answer these kind of more personal questions about are you actually in the right place to be running a practice autonomously and independently because we all like the idea of being autonomous and independent. And often when you talk to psychologists, say, what do you value about your workplace? Flexibility. Well, actually what they mean is inflexibility in some ways because what they want is that the the practice operates according to their lifestyle, that it can fit with nine to three, for example, so they can go and get their kids and so forth. So there's a lot of issues. I'm not saying these to be sexist or anything like that. I'm just saying that these are the issues for us as a female-dominated profession is that we can get into a, a kind of a mindset about wanting to have certain things the way that we like them to be. But the question is, will that actually work for the business? And being able to talk with somebody like somebody like me and there are other coaches around, of course, and just kind of thrash out whether at this point in your life this is the right time to be entering into private practice, especially if you're going to do it on your own. What do you think are some of the reasons uh, that a young psychologist might be thinking, you know what, I think I need to go into my own business? What would be the, uh, the draw card or the attraction? We've got a proliferation of practices at the moment in Australia. There's something like 22,000 psychologists who are in private practice, at least part-time, out of 33,000 registrants. That's a lot. And in my experience, there's kind of more practices than there are practitioners. So Psych Exchange, uh, which is a site that advertises um, jobs um, and is commonly used by practices to seek practitioners to join their practice, is getting like 200 ads, you know, a fortnight. That's a huge number. Um, And people can't recruit. People I talk to, practice owners that I talk to, say, um, I can't find any psychologists to work for me. And I think the reality of that is that people have got a bit cheesed off with the contractor model where there's a fee split and a percentage of your fee that you earn with the client is given to a practice director um, or to the practice. And people feel, uh, people being the clinicians, um, start to feel like, well, what am I getting for my money? They've watched um, uh, companies that have collapsed due to poor management, you can only assume, and people have been left out of pocket who paid money to that practice 
in order to um, get referrals. There's a sense of individual practitioners feeling that no one is seeing it from their perspective. And so if the practice director or the, the clinic they're working for doesn't ask them, what would it need for you to stay here? What could we do that would actually lead you to want to stay? If they don't ask that question, those people will walk. I was sort of thinking about it more from the point of view that, um, you know, you might see the fees that are capable of being charged out, for example, but then when you're, you know, working for somebody, you are getting a proportion of that, not the full right. whack. And so that might actually be seen to be, well, look, I'll, I'll start a business because then I'll I'll get more of that. But yeah. then there's another side to it, isn't there, which is the actual, the hidden cost of actually operating a business. There's the hidden cost and there's the personal cost and there's the lack of support and isolation. There's the fact that then you have to seek, you know, if you've been in a practice where somebody was providing a full suite of reception and um, intake services, were setting up all of your appointments, rescheduling people where required, making sure your diary was always full, offered supervision both on a sort of more formal basis and also the opportunity if something was bothering you or concerning you about a client, you could immediately speak to one of the senior psychologists in the practice. Then you might want to pay for that, but often people don't know what that's worth. And so they'll go, well, I could actually do some of that myself and I could actually just go and purchase supervision as required. And I think that's because uh, practice directors tend to not be able to convey to their um, contractors, to their practitioners, not so much look at what I'm doing for you because no one wants to hear that really. That's To me, that's self-serving really. Um, but more talk about what would you need in order to stay in this practice. And for some people, they don't want to give uh, the contracted service agreement fee, if you like, out of the fee that they make per hour by seeing clients. They don't want to give the, that amount to the practice because they don't necessarily want all the services that are being offered. That would be a really good thing to actually work through. So in terms yeah. of your your motivation to write a book like Fit to Practice, for example, are you sort of trying to make yourself available to practitioners uh, to be able to factor in what their life goals are or at least their short-term goals are in terms of why they might want to identify in a certain way, I'm a practitioner, I'm a business owner, I'm a part-time practitioner, I'm a full-time practitioner. Is it sort of those types of scenarios that you work through? Definitely. I mean, psychology is not a cottage industry anymore. There are too many complexities to it. There are too many risks. And so I'm not trying to overplay it as being some dramatic, you know, issue, but I think that often we tend to not realise that, you know, there's a high expectations from the community and from government. That's why we've had Medicare now since 2006, Medicare status. It's a big deal but it requires compliance and it requires us to be working in an effective way with our clients. And it requires us to, I guess, deliver on the promise of what psychology can offer when it comes to mental health issues in our community. We've just had Are You OK Day. We've just had Danny Frawley, you know, a, a mental health advocate and very well known in the football community here in Victoria, pass away. And people are saying to themselves, what are we doing wrong? Suicide rates are going up and yet we've got these psychologists doing all this work on our behalf with Medicare funding, um, but they don't seem to be making a dent on this. And so we're in that environment, uh, Yanni. We're in a quite political environment um, and we can't hide from it. We've got to be able to talk about what we do and how we do it in private practice, which is where a lot of the mental health money is being spent as far as government's concerned via Medicare Australia and where a lot of us are working. So we need to be able to talk about how we're going to create 
um, excellent business and clinical work in our practices. Yeah, that certainly um, resonates with my own uh, research as well. Um, notwithstanding that um, the origins of Core Plus, for example, were built around a um, psychologist who was working from multiple locations. A lot of the market research I was doing at the time clearly showed that uh, mental health was the third largest disease burden on the Australian healthcare system. And it was growing at a faster rate than uh, cardiovascular related issues and cancer related issues. So you could already see, and this was going back to, you know, sort of 2000, 2008, 2009, you know, for example, you could already see how important mental health and providing mental health services was and was going to continue to be going forward. So that, that certainly resonates from a sort of a business analysis standpoint. Yes, that's right. The government knows things like the statistics around outcomes for people going into mental health services. They know that if people stay in treatment, they are 80% likely to be better than those who are untreated. Mm-hmm. But we also know that 47% of people drop out before they actually get reliable change. In other words, before they actually achieve what they came for. And that's a, really a quite shocking statistic. And I think we've got to sort of think about, well, what does that say to us about the effectiveness of the work we're doing? Because essentially that's where a business stands and falls. Are you effective with what you do? Let's unpack that a little bit. So when you're, when you're sort of describing the idea of um, being, you know, fit to practice, there must be some uh, intention behind the choice of those uh, type of words, Kate, uh, that we're going into it because and I believe <laughs> there is because I've, I've read the book. But I'm, I want to offer you the opportunity to sort of unpack that a little bit. So is it, it's not just about getting a, a proprietary limited, you know, Australian company number, uh, ASIC registered company. What, what else is going into it that deals with that fitness that you describe? Well, I think the main thing we know about people who achieve positive outcomes from uh, engaging with mental health uh, practitioners is that a culture of feedback where they're actually being asked, are these sessions helping you in a structured way? And where we gather data that helps us to track that on a session by session basis, that those individuals, the individual clients do better than people where they're seeing clinicians who don't do that. The Fitbit is feedback-informed treatment is the name of the um, theory that um, is an overarching pan-theoretical approach to treatment. It doesn't say you can't do CBT or EMDR or IPT or all these other ACT, these various um, therapeutic methods. It just says that you need to track over time whether what you're doing is actually assisting the client to achieve their stated goal whether it's in line with their values and preferences and are the means and methods you're using to help them, assisting them according to them, not according to you, um, and what role are you playing as the therapist with that client? So it helps you to have those conversations, which are conversations many psychologists would say they attempt to have or like to think they have, but by measuring whether or not the overall well-being of that person is improving over time and also asking them, to uh, give feedback about the session on a session rating scale, that actually allows us to then be able to collaborate with our clients more effectively and stop dropouts before people are able to achieve reliable change. To me, the greatest travesty of private practice is that clinicians and directors of practices have an attitude that client wasn't ready to change. So if they didn't come back and we tried to contact them, then that's it. It's their choice to not return, but we have to reflect on how is it that um, we have, you know, maybe quite a high percentage of people turning up for two or three um, sessions and then not returning. Yeah, th- this may not be the best contextual example, but I'm just 
I'm just thinking in a completely um, adjacent field, you know, in retail, for example. Uh, just very recently I was uh, uh, with my wife in, uh, and we walked into a store and um, the people in the store didn't engage with us in any way, shape or form. And, but we had some questions. You know, we wanted to ask some questions about a few things that were going on. So we're sort of left to our own devices. Now, um, as we're walking out, my wife made a passing comment around how much of a care factor there was uh, with the uh, staff in that particular store. Mm. And I guess as I uh, just listened to you then, I was thinking, well, if you don't ask, how are you possibly going to know what that person's um, thoughts were around the service that they were receiving? You know, and, and what it was that they uh, weren't receiving or didn't feel that they were being offered that um, let them, you know, for lack of a better term, walk out and never come back again. You know, so is that the type of thing that you're describing there in terms of that feedback? Exactly. And if you wanted to talk, turn it into marketing language, it's what is your selling point? Mm-hmm. You know, are you selling a service that where what people tell you about what is helping and what is not helping, you're taking note of in a systematic way, using numbers, using data, not how was the session? It was great. Well, we all know that's to do with social desirability. It's not all that helpful. But if you ask somebody every session and you explain to them how important it is to get negative feedback for them to tell you, was there anything that you came here hoping to discuss today that we didn't discuss? Is there anything that we did or didn't do today that would lead you not to come back next time? This is, these are critical questions, rarely asked. So using outcome measurement actually helps create that environment. And then, of course, referrers find out that the GPs and so forth find out you're using these measures. You can put graphs of the client's progress over time into your letters to GPs. They go, these people know their stuff. They seem to be really kind of focused on a very professional treatment effectiveness driven model. We're getting good good verbal feedback from our patients, but also we're getting these terrific letters that really help us understand what the psychologist is doing rather than sort of self-serving um, kind of letters to say, thank you, GP, for sending, you know, Sally, she had some CBT and because she's got depression and anxiety and um, could you please send her back to us with a, a further review plan so that we can complete the 10 sessions. This is not a selling a way to sell your service and it's not an effective service in my view. Um, and I guess then who would want to come and work in a practice where that's the way it works? So it's about that leadership around creating that culture of feedback, setting that up and reinforcing it as you go along on a day-to-day basis if you're running a practice. Yeah, I can definitely see how important it would be to actually work through that and, and sort of in, encourage the individual psychologist to be okay with the idea of receiving feedback as well. You know, is that, yeah. Are you finding that's part, potentially part of the resistance? Yes, but can I say that probably anybody who's done a higher degree in psychology in any of the areas of um, endorsement over the last five to ten years has been trained in this outcome measurement stuff. It's not news. It's been around for quite a long time now. But what happens is they go out into private practice land where somebody like me of my vintage um, is running the practice who's never been trained in that, knows of it, perhaps has gone along to a few presentations on it and then said, oh, look, it's a bit too hard. I'm not really too sure how to do it. Um, how can I ask contractors to do uh, these outcome measurements? Uh, how do we do them? You know, we don't have um, iPads to, to use. I'm just not sure about the different platforms and so on and so forth and kind of gives up on it. The young psychologist comes into that practice. No one says, um, let's use outcome measurement and they don't do it either. And so they settle for less than what they were trained for because the people who are in supervisory or leadership roles have not been trained in it or have had only some exposure to it and never gone the next step. 
So we're underskilled um, in our leadership in that respect. And most of the leaders, uh, practice directors and so forth, if they're supervising, they're supervising to case presentations, individual clients or cases that the clinician brings to supervision. So they're just doing, you know, one widget at a time, essentially. And that doesn't lead to learning. It doesn't lead to knowing how effective are you over a group of clients. It doesn't lead to the capacity to be able to interrogate data that tells you about effect sizes and about how your dropout rate is, about what your retention is, how what's the average number of sessions that people come to see you, and so on and so on. Um, and this data is really crucial to being able to help people to develop themselves as clinicians. But we lose that opportunity with early career psychologists who know of these measures, have used them in the psychology clinics in their training, but then move into private practice and it's never spoken of again. It seems to me that there's there's kind of a tactical and strategic opportunity here, really. There's the, there's the individual practitioner in the relationship they have with their clients, um, the client load, so to speak and yep. how they can actually um, be able to demonstrate delivering outcomes and, and being effective in that particular uh, area of expertise. Then at a practice level, you know, that's something that can then be viewed across the performance of the practice and how it actually builds its brand and how it actually develops its um, standing within the, the community that it's serving. But then I think, um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, as a profession, if we're moving into that type of realm where, where we, we have data and I'm thinking about the concept of population health management and the ability to be able to say, as a profession, what are we doing, you know, to make an impact on um, uh, healthcare uh, issues uh, in mm -hmm. Australia and having then the data points to be able to underpin, I guess, the recommendations for policy and for, um, for change at a government level so that, the, you know, the representative bodies, for example, would actually have a much more robust data set to be able to advocate for change on behalf of its members. Is, is that a potential benefit as well? Of course, because at the moment we have the data that government is getting, Medicare Australia is getting, is very minimal. The uh, mainframe data set, minimum data set as they call it, that they get is only really from uh, clients who are being seen within the PHN uh, monies that are being put aside for people who have access problems. Everybody else is collecting their own data and doing their own thing with it if they're collecting anything. Only certain practices have actually developed their own data sets around how effective are we, but they're very few and far between and a lot of them don't publish that data. So there's a whole problem around how would we know what we're spending our money on and then what would we need to do to develop a continuous improvement model? Now you say continuous improvement to psychologists in, you know, in general, but particularly to private practices, they say, oh, that's, isn't that something you do in hospitals? You talk about quality right. assurance. Isn't that something you do in hospitals? These are all kind of terms that we need to get to terms with because otherwise how are we ever going to have a practice that continues to grow and offer both an effective uh, treatment for the clients who come to it but also provides job satisfaction for the clinicians working in it? That's a fascinating case. So I, I guess bringing it back and, it, you know, the book sets out everything from post-Medicare, uh, you know, implementation in Australia, what that meant for actually uh, for the profession and then coming into a practice. And, uh, you know, you've been honing in on some issues there around the individual and the type of lifestyle, work-life balance that they're trying to achieve for themselves at any given yep. stage. And then there's obviously the, um, the impact that the profession can make on Australians in improving their particular outcomes. So you're coming at it from a variety of different layers and I suppose that's the benefit of um, – 
your 30 plus years as a psychologist, your, you know, 17 plus years as a, as a businesswoman and now moving into the coaching uh, domain. It's I, lovely I could, to be an elder statesman, yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's that's the type of uh, leadership that you're, you're sort of, you're walking your talk, aren't you? You're sort of, um, you've identified what it was like for you in the industry and now you're trying to make a difference in that respect. Well, I hope, hope what comes over to people is I'm totally passionate about this because we can't have mediocrity in private practice. We, we just can't afford it as a community. We can't afford it as a profession. And, you know, we're hoping for a government to lead to some degree, our Psychology Board of Australia, our professional association, the APS and other professional associations around the place. But they all have their own issues um, in my experience. And really it boils down to what you're doing in your clinic and to that extent, it's a change process. There's kind of one clinic at a time, one practitioner at a time. And then eventually, hopefully, you have impact on multiple clients um, who are seeing that particular clinic and so on. But we have to change this um, idea of doing what I would call um, suboptimal work with our clients or doing work with our clients where we really don't know whether we're actually helping them or not. No, I love it. It, it, it reminds me of a, uh, an old samurai philosophy, which is uh, in order to change the world, one must first change themselves. Uh, that's what I'm hearing from you in that sense where it's, you know, you can make an impact on the profession, on your clients' lives and on your peer group through, you know, the path that you actually um, act out in your own kind of um, professional evolution. I mean, I, I worked for the first 12, 15 years of my life in country Victoria and, um, you know, I eventually came across Scott Miller in the early days. Um, so this is the uh, Dr. Scott Miller, who's the founder of the International Centre for Clinical Excellence and been a driver of this outcome measurement uh, type of idea. And I first came across him in 2000, long time ago. In fact, I went to America and um, studied with him for some time just before 911. That's how long ago. And I think for me, the reason I have been interested in this outcome measurement issue is because I realised early on that I'm quite good at therapy. I really like therapy. I like working with people. And there are times you come out of a therapy session, you think that really hit it, that hit the nail. Uh, and you can feel very satisfied with that. But the question is, was it satisfying for the client? Mm. And you can be good at doing therapy, but were you good with doing therapy with that client? And over 30 years of practice, I'd have to say, there's no way I could continue to work clinically kind of in the way I do, which is very a very person-centred, person-orientated fashion and not a burnt out because the thing that outcome measurement allows you to do is to collaborate with a client, bring your expertise to the table, but be asking the client all the time about how's it going for you, is this working for you and are we focused on the things you came for? So they are actually accountable to the treatment and you're accountable for bringing the expertise and the two of them meet when we measure outcome. And if you're able to talk to the person in the appropriate way about those measures and to use them in the appropriate way, then it's a lot easier to do that work rather than trying to work out what's going on for this person, trying to create a clinical formulation or a case conceptualization out of your own head about what you think they're thinking, what I would call mind reading, which is kind of what we indulge in to some degree, there's nothing wrong with interpreting what a client is saying to you and having an interpretation that is in the form of a case conceptualization or what we use, we call the four Ps, you know, which is a way of kind of assessing somebody's uh, presentation. But ultimately, um, it is about really being able to um, test that out with the client and get them on board with, therefore, what the treatment plan is. 
And therefore, then you're prosecuting that treatment plan with them, not at them or on them. And that to me is such a relief. I mean, I've very well trained in a number of different therapeutic methods, but can I tell you the the fact that I can have a conversation with somebody and say, well, we could try this and this, and I think what's going on is this. What do you think? And work with them on that both in the planning but also in the execution, in treatment, and, of course, any um, between-session work that, that we decide to do just makes it so much easier because I'm not guessing and guessing wrong. So you can go along and see clients and people don't drop out and you think you do well, your book's always full. And then along comes somebody who just you don't get and they don't get you. And then what? That's the challenge. And I guess I'd say it's those clients. I still get them. Everybody does. But I know that I've got that person. I say, I don't think we're actually connecting too well here. What can we do about that? Maybe you'd be better off seeing somebody else, different age, a different gender, a different approach. That all can be had as an early conversation. So that person hasn't done 10 sessions with me and said, well, that was a waste of time, but had no way of telling me that. There's a few acronyms in the industry. And Hmm. um, given that outcome measures have been um, uh, well understood by the profession for quite a period of time, um, where do you see the the differentiation, uh, you know, moving forward uh, in amongst the tool set that psychologists could be using, you know, to be... um, documenting their outcome measures or at least um, being able to get some sense of how that's um, progressing, you know, what are the key benefits and differentiation there? First of all, the the main way to get benefit is to have one digital platform that covers everything. And we don't have that at the moment. You might argue Core Plus could offer that. But but I guess I'd say that the difficulty for a lot of people is they've got, perhaps they're doing outcome measures using some of the apps like Novo Psych or they're using ORS, the Outcome Rating Scale, and the Session Rating Scale, the FIT, which are the FIT tools. There's three or four uh, platforms you can use for those. There's a number of practice management uh, systems, of course. And then there's your MyOBS, your New Zeros, and so forth, which are accountancy systems that are usually connected to practice management platforms. But the trouble is there's four or five different things you're talking about here. It's too much. Somehow we've got to get it so that the things that we value are the relationships with our clients and we've got time for that and the systems, the digitalised systems we have serve that. So we've automated text messages and reminders for things and sending out invoices and Medicare rebates and all sorts of things but we have not got the whole lot in one place in terms of outcome measurements and so it's just not that easy for people Um, and until it's easy then it won't happen. You've got to make it so that to give somebody an outcome measure is easier than not giving it to them. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, um, but which ones? How complicated is it to actually have the broader community of um, psychologists agree that there's a certain amount of um, outcome measurement approaches that are preferable compared to others? Or is it, is it sort of um, a customizable type of concept? I think there is movement forward in this in this area um, and people are saying, yep, we need to be measuring outcomes. But as you rightly say, which ones? And the difficulty is you can't be giving certain um, psychometric tests to a client every session. If you sit a client down and say, here, have a test that measures your depression, anxiety and stress, which we one of the tests we use is the DAS, or here, have a test called um, the K10 that measures emotional distress and I'm going to give that to you every session What do you think the client's going to tell you? I'm emotionally distressed. I'm still depressed, anxious, and stressed. That's not motivating. 
there's no problem with giving those tests, but we wouldn't give them every session. So part of it is people getting their heads around the idea that whatever we're going to give to people, we're going to be giving them every session. It's got to be short and sharp, and it's got to give a graph straight away that you can use with that client. Any other tests you're going to give are really baseline measures and symptomatology measures that you would give spasmodically. If you say to people, what's a baseline measure or a screening measure, they'll go the DAS, the K10, you know, and so on and so forth. They'll be able to reel them off. But if you said to them, what's an outcome measurement, then they'll probably struggle a bit. They'll want to tell you about customised goals, which is not the same thing, because we really want something that can give us a number, because then we can measure it over time and we can measure it between clients. So the whole notion of outcome measurement is really about choosing a measure that is so universal that it speaks to what mental health treatment is supposed to be doing, which is improving overall well-being. That'd be one of the areas of biggest impact that you'd be hoping to, to achieve? Definitely. Putting outcome measurement in place in your practice will be the best thing you've ever done. It'll also be hard. It does take a few years to get it going. People go, oh, God, a few years, really? Um, but unfortunately, that you know, in order to get everybody on board, to get it happening in a way that is automated, that makes it part of the everyday business of your practice, that all takes time and takes leadership and takes support. Yeah, I think that's um, really powerful uh, insights and guidance. I know personally through uh, my time in, in business, I probably took a good 10 years trying to figure a lot of stuff out on my own. And, you know, on reflection, the time cost alone is massive when, you know, yes, okay, so it's somewhat satisfying in in that solving challenges and overcoming issues and and getting it done. But, wow, you never get that 10 years back. You know, whereas when you speak with people who have been there and done that and understand how to consolidate that experience faster, rather than in my case retrospectively taking 10 years to reach a certain level of experience, let's say, um, I could have got there in three or two or four years, but certainly I would have saved a ton of time that um, is irreplaceable. You know, you never get the time back. I mean, this is why I wrote the book was really to share resources and I've got more of them, believe me. And people sort of say to me, oh, you're just giving this stuff away. I guess I say, well, first of all, most of it is just stuff that I've put, brought together that was other people's work. There's nothing new under the sun at one level. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not pretending that I invented the wheel. I didn't but I'll put stuff together that you might find helpful. It's all acknowledged who I who I might have taken stuff from and a lot of it is stuff that's well known to all of us. I've just repackaged it in a way that's going to be more helpful in the private practice context. Here, have it. And people are stunned. Psychologists are really interesting. They, they don't expect anybody to give them anything. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. As I say, there's this sort of a little bit of a fear dynamic. What do you want? I don't want anything. I just want you to do better. I don't care if you don't see me or have me as a coach. But you've talked to me about, you know, often I have a you know, first session with people without any charge or anything. And I say, from what you've told me, these things might be helpful. I'll send them to you anyway. Let me know what your thoughts are. And then I'll leave it with them um, because that's your best advertisement really as a coach is that you are open and giving. I, I think that's um, pretty inspirational, Kay, because um, you're acknowledging basically that I think all of us um, at whatever stage we're at in our lives, we are the sum total of everything we've ever interacted with through the course of our lives. And that includes all the you know, the wisdom and the education and uh, the inspiration that comes from a lot of other people. And so I actually think it's a positive when somebody can actually consolidate that and then be able to communicate it effectively. You know, so you become a resource. You know, you're like um, a library that has all of these resources contained in it based on your clinical experience as well as your business experience, um, as well as your, you know, recruiting experience and selling business experience and all of these different experiences that 
you've had to, um, you know, draw on all these other resources and you've become this concentrated resource to be able to help other people fast track their access to that. Yes. I'm saying, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of all the people who supported me. So then you can stand on my shoulders and get what you need. So let's do that. Let's let's work together. Let's network. If people are interested and they're um, listening to this uh, podcast, and I just might put in a little plug for um, a two-day retreat that myself and two other colleagues, Aaron Frost, who runs quite a big practice in um, Brisbane, and Daryl Chow, who has um, uh, written a number of books with Scott Miller on um, both uh, outcome measurement and on something called deliberate practice, which is a way of improving what we do. Uh, we're running this retreat um, in November, 29th and 30th of November in a lovely Brisbane. Um, if you're interested, please email me, k at kfrankham.com, and I can let you know about it. It's also on the APS events calendar if you want to have a look there. Um, it's going to be talking about fit. It's going to be talking also about business excellence and about how to get your uh, professional practice standards up up and going and make sure that you're covering off everything you need to cover off in order to have the practice that you want to have. So uh, just I put a little plug in if that's no, all right. No, sure. No, look, that's fine. If you like, um, we'll get links to that uh, sure. webpage in the show notes as well. Uh, and that way, um, you know, because that's kind of time specific, you know, people in the short term will be able to get access to it. Um, yeah. But I think there's a lot of um, what you've been talking about today that will endure beyond the, um, you know, a particular event like that. And people will have links for people to be able to contact you as well and get in touch. Um, I guess one last um, question just before we finish up here today, uh, Kay, is uh, I like to ask, uh, you know, in the context of reimagining healthcare, um, you know, how would you sum up your, your vision? for the next sort of, let's say, five years on what you'd like to see? For me, um, private practice is my focus clearly in, the, in my coaching business, but what I'd like to see in total is an integrated health service and where what private practices, especially psychology private practices are good at, uh, that we're allowed to do that and we are able to do that and that we're integrated into the healthcare system, that there's not a disconnect between people coming out of um, ED with um, suicide uh, suicide attempts or suicidal ideation and having been given three names of a psychologist to go and see with nobody really explaining them who or why they would want to see these people and who was any good. We have to get past that. We have to have an integrated health system so people are, that no door is the wrong door but also people are going through the right door for them. And that's my vision is to try and do something in the public sector. I do work with a, a PHN, a primary health network here in Melbourne. And I'm really trying to bring to their attention the fact that there's all this mental health services going on out there in the private sector. And they're very focused on the public sector, the community health services, the hospitals and so on. But we won't get an answer and we won't get an outcome and we won't ever get the suicide rates down and we won't ever improve our overall well-being as a community unless we integrate public and private sector mental health. I think that's a great vision. Um, it certainly resonates with me. It's a, it's a big reason why we've been trying to deal with some aspects of it to the extent that we can with digital health uh, interoperability and connecting different points of care. And I agree with you. I think there's definitely, um, you know, the hospital sector seems to have had a lot more time, money and effort put into it to try and sort out some of those journeys, but they still confine themselves to their four walls. Because, you know, in the hospital ecosystem, for example, you do have a lot of different practitioner types that are um, uh, cooperating around the interests of a uh, patient. And so, you know, it's not it's not a radical thought. It's actually something that's um, probably more sophisticated and nuanced in some areas of health, but not in others. So I think bringing that all together 
and really providing a seamless journey for uh, us as Australians to be able to navigate through the healthcare system um, is a great vision. Uh, definitely one that, you know, really hits the mark with me as well. Okay, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Yanni. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.